Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Hi, welcome to Mindspace. This is Jeff Boucher, and I'm here with Maya St. Clair, and we are getting animated today. Uh, you know, Maya, we have had two Oscar-nominated animated works on the show this year. Uh, we've had The Mitchells vs. Mm -hmm. Machines, and we had Windshield Wiper, and now this week we have Robin Robin, which is nominated for Animated Short, so it's going up against Windshield Wiper, and we have Mikey Please and Dan Ajari. Yeah, they're uh, friends and directors. Uh, Robin Robin is their nominated short. It's a really cute Christmas themed uh, short that's on Netflix right now. It's stop motion and it's from Ardman. So, you know, the people who did Wallace and Gromit and it's has all the trademarks of an Ardman film. It's cozy. It's got lots of, <laughs> actually, I was going to say it's it's got tweed, but I think it's because the characters are animals. It's little scraps of fabric that they use as blankets. And I don't think you ever really see the full humans. It's it's kind of got that uh, worm's eye view and it's, it's super wholesome for all you heavy metal fans who are like, oh, well, if it's not adult animation, I'm just not going to, I'm just going to log off right now. It's very visually stunning. The if you like the kind of eclectic style of the heavy metal movie, you'll love Robin Robin just because it mixes a lot of styles. It incorporates lots of new visual flourishes to the stop motion. There's some CGI. We talk in this interview about uh, their kind of the felt that they use and all the different tips and tricks. It's really a beautiful film that you can learn a lot from. And we also talk about storytelling, uh, keeping things short and simple and easy to break down. Did you have anything else, Jeff, before we go into it? Well, you know, it's just, uh, uh, I love the heart that the story has, and I love um, these guys. I think they're really fantastic. I'm so glad they came on the show, and I'm, I'm excited to uh, see if they win an Oscar uh, coming up here. It's mostly about uh, a bird peg trying to fit into a mouse hole, which every time I say it, I think it's clever, but it just sounds kind of weird, I think. Yeah, a little I'm gonna bit. I'm going to say it again during the interview. I'm going to try it out during the interview and see if it works. I, I think it's going to fall flat. All right. We'll definitely be cheering them on. Wish them luck. Definitely check it out. It's on Netflix. It's about, you know, 15 minutes of very well-spent time. Perfect for the family or, you know, just a quiet, cozy night at home. Uh, yeah. But here's Dan Ojari and Mikey, please. Well, it's so great to have you guys on the show. You know, Mikey, one of the things that's really interesting is that uh, you, you were just telling me about your last name. You and I have uh, an interesting status. My last name is pronounced Boucher, but I found out in my 20s that it's traditionally it should be Boucher and that it was mispronounced due to uh, some French nuns who in, uh, were part of my uh, my father's kind of interesting childhood. Uh, and, and they mispronounced it and he liked the sound of it. 
And uh, I kind of stuck with it because I have a con man's heart. I, I like the idea of that, <laughs> being a fraud right from the get-go. But you have a, a similar uh, interesting background with your name. Yeah, so my name is, is Mikey Please, but it is... Um... It was originally Plaisé, which is, um, I believe, French to Platt. And when um, some of my ancestors fled the French Revolution, uh, I don't know if it was to sort of escape their, their past or it was just a sort of brutalization by, by British pronunciation. It was like, oh, it's just please. Just pronounce yeah. it as please. But, but your story reminds me of, um, I don't know if you're familiar with, called Keeping Up Appearances, no. where there was a lady who has presented herself as... Uh, Miss Bouquet, but her real name was Miss Bucket. Um, <laughs> but you'll have to check it out because it's um, more in line with your um, elevated uh, fanciness. Of your I, like that. I like that a lot. There was an episode of um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, That's the name of it, right? Is that the show? Yeah. Uh, and they, my, my daughter watches it. She sent me a, a screen grab of the video. It's uh, one of the characters saying, Chef Bouquet, I hate that guy. Like just randomly. Um, and she's just like, can you believe this coincidence? And I'm like, no, nah, that's probably somebody that just really doesn't like me. That's like, it's, it's kind of a small town. Like that's from, yeah. that might not be a coincidence. That might, that might be on me. Uh, you, you, have, you have a long history in showbiz. So, I mean, that's gotta be. You know, yeah, I've been doing this 20 some years. So like I've, I've interviewed enough writers that if somebody <laughs> had the opportunity, they would take the shot, you know. Well, it's um, nice to get the sound bite. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, you know, when I was uh, in fifth grade or third grade, I should say, um, someone in one of my classes noticed something and, and said out loud, if you stick a T in your first name, it spells get off. And that was three years of misery for me. Like the next three years, that was my name. Everywhere I went, I was get off. And, uh, um, and so I'm still bearing the scars of that. But I wanted to show that just because I was feeling good about life and I needed to take it down a notch. So Yeah, thanks uh, for sharing that. Yeah. Do you want us to dig further into that? Shake the whole chat around. Yeah. You know, actually, I'm going to go lay down now. Uh, <laughs> so I want to talk to you guys about Robin Robin. I, I, uh, or I like to, or as I like to sum it up, when we're, uh, when you're a bird peg that fits in a mouse hole. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's such a great way to communicate a story and a great heart to it. Uh, tell me a little bit about that experience, just uh, uh, where it started and, and, uh, and what it was like seeing, uh, seeing it fly to such heights. Uh, <laughs> it's quite a, I mean, yeah, it's, it's funny because that, as you just summed up, um, the, the kind of the main heart of the story is like the absurdity of a bird brought up by a family of mice and her sort of desire to fit in and that sense of belonging and that kind of you know sort of being yourself regardless of how different you are that was that was like the central message and it feels really obvious now and kind of simple that that is that is the the sort of central uh sort of thread of the story but when we initially we just kind of came up with this idea of we, we love the idea of like a, an egg falling from a nest one stormy night and and rolling into a mouse burrow and then bringing it up and and it just felt exciting and and, and also yeah the, we had this idea of like magpies which love shiny things and her getting wrapped up in a wishing star heist so we had all these things on the table and um and they stayed with the story right from the beginning right from like about eight years ago when we 
um, first started, me and Mikey first started like working up the story. And it was only like when we really dug into it and started making it here at Ardman that, um, that we realized that actually that, that opening situation of like an egg falling into a mouse burrow and a bird being brought up by mice had had such a powerful like story in just in that and and the theme kind of came with it that the more we kind of dug into it it was just like discovering and figuring out this this theme rather than kind of um I don't know just having a character that you like and thinking how are we going to tell what we're going to say with this story is it about you know uh, finding yourself is it about you know I don't know looking for the good or da, da, da. but it, yeah it, it definitely sort of we realized in reflection that that the story was always there, like in this opening situation. Yeah, yeah, and the visual of, of an egg falling, I mean, it's so instantly, it communicates. Yeah. It's an elemental thing, like you instantly, you, it doesn't need to be explained. And, uh, no, and, and I, and, and I think we found it from right from the beginning, wherever we told the story, people seemed interested. And and I think if you unpack it, it does, we didn't know it at the time, but it comes back to that, that, um, that setup that just, intrinsically kind of has something to say with it and people understand it people understand everyone knows kind of what it's like to be different on some level and they've done it you know they've lived through it probably in their teens Uh, you know everyone's kind of gone through that in in different ways and um and so it resonates and um yeah but but it's kind of fun that's what me and Mikey like doing is like making something a bit silly and absurd yeah or something it sounds like the uh, the uh, understand you right that almost like the story drove the characters as opposed to starting with the characters and then coming up with experiences for them it was almost the experience shaped yeah characters you ended up with that's really right actually yeah yeah so I think I think it took us quite a while once we started developing it to really as Dan said like dig into who Robin was and, and what was her journey to learn here and um we, we were talking about this earlier today actually which like one, one of the first things my dad texted me after he watched the film was like really nice yeah um, very simple story you know well done. like it's like it's not a simple like, actually you know what it is it, it is like a really on the surface it is a very very kind of simple story that feels universal but honestly getting to that level of simplicity the core of it and trying to put aside all that like situational stuff of like yeah well, there'll, there'll be this fun bit here and this like plot mechanism and and getting to the core of it was such a long process of like yeah. reduction and putting too much in and taking it all out again yeah yeah it's yeah. funny that because because we were saying that because if someone says it was oh, i really enjoyed it it was a really simple story it's right you're like oh actually that's a really we take it as a really good compliment because now um, I do <laughs> yeah <laughs> I don't know whether you took I didn't it at the time I was so pissed at the time <laughs> but um but but it, it's funny because the word simple you you associate oh it's a simple story therefore it must have been simple to make mm. and I think that's and sometimes they can be I guess you can just come up with a really quickly a simple story that is great and that's great you good on you uh, but uh, <laughs> we, we, we definitely spent like years you know, knowing that it was, no, we were like, this is good. It feels good. And how does it, how can we refine it down to its simplest and clearest? Especially working within like a 30 minute confine, you know, we, we were trading frames at the end, you know, there was so, there was no fat on that animal. There was all, everything had to count. Um, so it was tricky. I think we, we had an analogy of, um, we brought up at some point during the writing the anecdote of, I think it was Pascal, um, who had written a 
really long letter to one of his colleagues and at the end signed off and said sorry I didn't have time to write a short letter uh -huh. and and it's a great sorry I didn't have time to write a short letter is a really good thing to remind yourself that like it's actually easy to kind of knock off something very very lengthy but getting to the point can be a massive arduous task yeah isn't that fascinating I, and I think it's one of the most um it's one of the most elusive things for people to learn is that, uh, you know, to make things elemental, maybe is a way like, you know, an elemental story is, it can't, it, it can be simple, but it's also, it has a resonance and, and it's, it's true to itself. It's complete and things like that. So like, there was, there was a story yeah. I did year, years ago was, uh, at the LA times when I was a crime reporter, I started, I was a crime reporter for like seven years. But I learned a really valuable lesson. I, I, I met this one cop and I decided I really wanted to write a story about her because she had been a former gang member in the same neighborhood. She was now a cop. And I met her and she had this amazing story. Uh, and, and, you know, she'd been in gangs and then she got out of the gangs. So anyway, so that's all this stuff, right? Like, and, and I filled like three notebooks. I'm like, oh my God, and then what happened? And then what happened? And um, I sat down to write it. And that's when you realize like, it, it was like a, it was like an ice cream cone on a summer day. And I kept putting scoops on top and you're like, I just, so I want them all, but it's not going to hold. You're going to end up with <laughs> sidewalk ice cream. Very, you know, and, yeah. and my niece had just been born and I was looking at children's books and I realized that's what I need to do. I need to write it like it's a children's story, like to have that clarity. Mm -hmm. I finally got it boiled down and, and actually I, I was so proud of it because it, it, uh, the first paragraph was, Mona Ruiz carries the weight of two badges. One is the silver shield of the Santa Ana Police Department. And the other is the gang tattoo that coils down the wrist of her shooting hand. Jeff, that is beautiful, oh, man. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I was so hooked. I, I just want to spend the rest of our time together listening to that story. <laughs> it's be more but, but also that process that you went through, although the the sub like the the thing you were working with was someone's real life story which is incredible just hearing it um and knowing that it's true you know the knowing that someone's actually gone through that gives it inherent meaning but what we found <clears throat> with them and it probably like what you had to do is to found you know to commit to, to the reason why you tell that to someone else is like what's the the truth within it or what's the the core message you want to say because i guess with all that with her amazing life story you could focus in on quite a few different parts of it and say something different. And that, that's what we found in, in really sort of, you know, engaging with like storytelling over making this and thinking of other stories since from Robin is um, that I always just take it back to like, imagine sitting around a campfire and telling a story and why you would do that. I don't know, like it feels natural that you would, you would have something to say, some wisdom to impart or, a point to the story essentially yeah and and you could tell a sort of really fantastical story that had like loads of monsters and scares in it and people would be wowed but if you had no punchline or, or end ending to it it would just feel like a sort of I don't know like a sort of trick or something like it yeah, and, right. and equally if you just said to someone do you know what you should be good to people it's better to be good to people they go okay I'm probably won't remember that whereas if you can if you can combine the two and get people hooked in and believe the story and also say, and that's why you should be good to people. That's the kind of magic of storytelling. And, and that's the kind of, if that, if that resonates, it's because it's got a human truth to it. And, and I guess that like hearing her story, it's really fascinating to hear 
how you then had to unpick and focus in on what is that human truth? What's the, the core thing that, that was within all that, that, that will resonate and makes. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. right. And, it, and it's, it's, it's funny because when we, we all respond to story, you know, I think it's like the way we're built, you know, the way we communicate lessons and, you know, I've always thought that they should have a museum of story. Like I can't believe there isn't that like celebrating yeah. the way that story has like shaped us, you know, th through everything that we've ever done, you know, like, I don't think we give that enough respect or, or think about that enough, you know, like, yeah. Um, and a lot of times I realized when I was writing, I would sit down and I, because we're used to reading or watching things, the way I would approach writing was like, I would be doing the cinematography before I did the screenwriting. Like I was on all about the visuals, like, you know, you know, finding the great way to start the movie. Like, you know, what's the first thing you see, and, you know, as opposed to what you're saying, which is why are people doing what they're doing? What's the lesson here? What's the, you know, and, and if you get to that, then you have a great story, but it was hard for me to yeah. start with that. But now I, I, I yeah, I, but it's because, I, oh, sorry, Mikey, you, you go. No, um, no, no, you, you're probably going to, yeah, no, you go down. <laughs> I was just going to say that the, the, the craft of story is, is, you know, when it's done well and you remember it, it's because it's not there and it's invisible. It's, in, it's infused in the thing that you've... It's you've a self-fulfilled prophecy. So, yeah. so I, and it's, I think I had very much the same journey, which was making films initially. It was just all about how it looked and the kind of effects and the sort of the kind of excitement of making these little worlds. And then it was a bit like, oh, I should probably come up with some sort of story to like, or some character that does something. And I'd try and make <laughs> stuff just based with no knowledge of the craft, but just sort of like, well, it feels like maybe they should start a bit like this and then do that at the end. And it's only like actually learning about the craft of story that you realize that that is why like all the things that I love in the world, like really love, it's because of the story in them. It's, you know, like in the films and things like that. And the other things are like, I don't know, it's both, but it's like, the, the, I remember the, the amazing kind of cool effects. I remember the spectacle, um, the spectacle of it. But, um, but the reason why I care about those things is, is this, the, the story craft. And that is really ethereal. And even when you learn the craft, it still doesn't, give you the tools to do it <laughs> yeah it's still pretty <laughs> rare yeah. yeah i mean i think that's 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 why they're so rare and precious and wonderful is is that even when you know the sort of the hindsight grid that well this grid fits on good stories it's still a retrospective way to identify stories that actually as a way to build stories I think you need to go back and forth so you said you started with the cinematography oh. i mean and this this is a conversation dan and i energetically have yeah. <laughs> about like well the, the the sort of the relationship between the two you know and I think we've used the example of like Jurassic Park before of you know you have the island of dinosaurs and you have the Boy, journey yeah. of a father I know I'm so sorry anyone can see that journey of a guy <laughs> learning to love children and, and 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 you can't really separate them I don't think or if you do both of those things that are quite flat they sort of feed back and forth and you end up with something exciting but yeah it's I still don't, there, there, there's no like magic formula isn't that I, interesting I like, in it. it really is you know, I, I, this reminds me of something um, I was talking to somebody the other day about Avatar it reaches the level of spectacle that everybody wanted to see it like when King Kong came out or Wizard of Oz came out Avatar is like that it's such a visual mm. different 
paradigm shift that it's and and has a story in it so it, it satisfies us but it's disproportionate on spectacle versus what you're talking about which is like heart or or lesson mm. or spirit or whatever we want to call it I yeah I, I haven't really unpicked what it's a really great point but what avatar is the the kind of message of it um like uh, it's because I, I sort of do this or me and Mikey do this quite often where we like pick a film and then try and down to the to like the one sentence the word that the filmmaker probably was thinking in their well, head. Well, the same as Pocahontas. I don't know. I, I think because if you can boil it down to like that one phrase sentence, then you know that that's. Uh, but because because Harry Potter, like the 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 reason why I sort of fell in love with the world, and I used to, <laughs> I remember I was just thinking about this. I used to um my mum used to read books to my sisters. I've got two younger sisters who are like quite a bit younger than me. One of them's ten years younger. And they got into it when they were quite young and my mum would read it to them every night and I would sit outside their bedroom and listen in. <laughs> uh -huh. I'd like listen to my mum reading it to my sisters and I got like so hooked on it. But you the thing that really resonated with me was, was the friendship. And I think that's like at the heart of it, it's like it's the friendship group between the, you know, Ron Hermione and Harry sure. Potter and, um, and, and the way that I don't know, relationships are told in that world that combined with wizardry and all that um, is is why I, I loved it. And I, and I, yeah, so it's got that huge heart to it. That yeah, it really does. Um, and, and Harry Potter yeah. and Avatar, the thing they have in common uh, is that they're, they're into Avatar's credit, it's fully immersive. Like you fully believe, you fully the world is complete. It's true to itself. You understand it. You understand where you're at. And to, to you know, you feel things, and and that's like Harry Potter. That's like the great accomplishment of Harry Potter. And uh, you know, it's fascinating to think about the things that work. Uh, you know, when you look at like Star Wars, and you know, it's the comprehensiveness of it. Like you know, like the fact that there were all these action figures. I mean you know kevin smith has this really interesting point that he's made and i agree with it 100 he's like you know the reason that people feel the way they do about star wars isn't really about the movies it was about the toys like you know we had we didn't have uh, cable and blu-rays that we could watch star wars over and over and over and over again i mean we saw it at theaters multiple times but but then it would go years before you would see it again you couldn't just dip into star wars you know uh, there would be a re-release every few years or something like that it was the time spent with toys in between and 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 the 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 immersiveness that you know the completeness of this universe like there's this car and this spaceship and this spaceship and this spaceship and this guy and you remember this guy and i bet you don't remember this guy you know there's thousands of them because it makes it feel so real and i, I mean that's it's like lord of the rings with the map in the back of the book like it's we i think people really respond to that the, the stuff the immersion the immersive completeness because you can really yeah. go somewhere if you feel it, it's a real place that's that's like the escapism of of story isn't it it's like you escape into that world and perhaps there's like yeah it's like the combination of wanting to escape into something and when you're there being like learning something or coming exactly. back because if exactly. you if you just as yeah so you feel like on some base level that that you're not escaping you're 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 learning in this world or so yeah the combination yeah, like, of the two of like the wonder of the world that you want to escape into i mean everyone you know like i remember getting really into video games when i was younger and certain games that weren't 
they didn't really have much story in them or anything and I would spend all my time in that world and I'd come away and feel quite like empty yeah <laughs> whereas when you leave a film or, or you know I guess like a video game that has that story and you leave and you feel like you've you've you're like being replenished in some way so perhaps it's you like, like your passport you're coming home from a trip and your passport's been stamped and you're looking at that stamp and you're like i remember this trip like it feels like it's like yeah. a journey, like to a place and it's it's it... I, to take it back to your um your analogy of the toys as well i wonder if it's i have a sort of theory which is about yeah. being sort of having dominion over a world or something which I think is like why I said like the 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 map at the back of Lord of the Rings or um understanding these sort of immersive worlds is that you're kind of like in control of them and maybe that's maybe that's similar to like having these elements of fantasy within our world is that then we're 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 a bit more like in control of them or something but I, I think it's kind of why certainly like taking back to toys and things like how um that relationship with storytelling was so appealing and um and maybe maybe like stop motion animation actually to think about it particular of like being able to um have dominion over <laughs> over characters and sure. um and this, that sort of sense of the disproportionate scale between you and these like miniature worlds feels really satisfying and I, I, like looking at my um my, my son and like the way that he plays with toys and like particularly like plays with cars like from a really really young age and I think it's because they're such recognizable icons of a world that is much bigger than him but he can shrink them down and hold them in his hand and have some element of control over it that it's really really appealing and there's like a sort of fundamental satisfaction with that of like whenever you see something that should be big but it's small and you can control it that <laughs> oh, yeah. it like taps into this like deep human desire to be god. more present in the world <laughs> than we are <laughs> or to be god i guess like or to make, make things come out and like we want everything to turn out well maybe too like uh, in a way but you're you're right isn't it like dioramas and there's a museum in new york i i want to go to i haven't been to but it has this this vast tiny vast it's both i don't know how but it's a uh, uh new york city like recreated in this this room and you can walk you, oh yeah i've seen so you it, oh, yeah. put on a godzilla suit it would be like awesome i want to go there and put on a godzilla suit just like stomp everything um you think they let you in if you're wearing a godzilla suit you know what they see it coming King Kong, Godzilla, keep moving. Just keep it walking. Just don't even stop, Mister. We know we know what you're here for. <laughs> you back there, the one that looks like uh, Megatron. You keep walking too. <laughs> Just a whole queue of costumes. Yeah. That'd be funny though. That'd be funny if everybody went there if they had a masquerade contest and you could only come as like either Godzilla, King Kong, or a Transformer. <laughs> Um, I imagine um, Ardman, I, I, I like to think of it the way I like to think of Marvel in the 60s or Pixar when it started, like as a place where all these crazy people are doing stuff that it probably isn't necessarily like that. Uh, but that's the way I like to think about it. I think, I think it is. Certain, certainly at the sort of shoot, there, there are two sites to Ardman. There's the, um, the one in the center of Bristol, which is where we're based, which is like the sort of design and writing and production. And then there's the 
the kind of the massive warehouses a little bit on the outskirts where all the the craft and the building and the shooting so that's where we spend like a, a year over the pandemic <laughs> making Robin Robin and and that place is like you walk around it and you feel a little bit like you're um Alice who's you know drunk from one of those little bottles and you're sort of walking through these like rows of houses that are all stacked up on shelves around you and you turn a corner and there's someone like whittling some gigantic like incredible structure and yeah it's really it really is like a sort of Aladdin's cave of nerdy delights That's awesome. <laughs> it's it's quite an interesting place as well in that I mean obviously we well not obviously but we've um sort of come to the studio in the last few years but being like a, a really established studio but it's it's sort of been built up in in a really like kind of lovely kind of independent manner of like you know uh, Pete and Dave who founded it and, and Nick Park they kind of those guys sort of we were a really small company like you know just there was just a handful of people making bunch of weirdos basically you know exactly. <laughs> That's what I, the to keys say, but I was to trying to be I was trying to be more professional but anyway <laughs> weirdos but they but and, and and somehow bizarrely like making stop motion animation which is is like a sort of you know it all it feels like a fringe of a fringe like short film is fringe and then stop motion is even more but but somehow it's they almost defiant to... it's almost defiant <laughs> <laughs> like and, it's, it's uh, quirky to defiance almost. yeah and 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 for them to like hit the big time with these and and retain their voice the whole time that they're going you know and and become household names and you know in, in the uk like nick park was just like people knew who he was you know in in yeah. most households and he's like a stop-motion animator that just made a couple you know what i say just but you know some short films and it's kind of amazing that they've managed to build this incredible studio and it's still at the core uh, is is those same same people in the same spirit of the, that that independent studio and that's that's what we've loved coming here and and um and, and sort of like bringing our project which you know we we had a really similar probably similar setup in london to like the guys when they they started Ardman here which was just like a few of us making stuff and just in a kind of disused warehouse is where we had our studio um and and so to kind of come here and 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 work at a studio that's that's so established but still has that that enthusiasm and the kind of the the love of the craft and the passion of the of the craft to kind of follow that um has been really amazing and i think only probably in hindsight when you look back you realize how well how fortunate we feel <laughs> and how what a wonderful kind of process that was with with yeah. Team. I mean, I think I think it is the first. Correct me if I'm right. This maybe yeah. This this might be a wildly incorrect statement, <clears throat> but I'll say it anyway. Um, that we I think I think our project is the first thing they've done in terms of long form content that's like developed from the outside. You know that they yeah. that they brought us in and um, you know sort of outside of the house style uh in certainly in stop motion i know they've, they've obviously had departures in cg i think that is the case i may be <laughs> slapped down tomorrow <laughs> say, but, um anyway but right. i just feel like extraordinarily lucky <laughs> to be able to come in and and work with these amazingly talented and uh passionate people yeah. one of the things as well as um 
was getting to work with Dave Alex Rudette, who is the director of photography on Robin Robin, but he also lit and, and, and filmed um, The Wrong Trousers. And right from the beginning of Ardman, he's kind of worked on, on almost all the kind of classics that everyone knows. And, and he's just an incredible person, such a positive and warm guy. And, and he's just so, got such an enthusiasm about, about making films and about, yeah, the, the whole, um, and, 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 and one of the amazing things for us was getting to work with them because he literally made the films that inspired us to get into filmmaking. You know, the, like the early Wallace and Gromit films were, were so, had, had such a big impact on me and Mikey kind of growing up. And, and so to get to work with him, but also what was even beyond that was him kind of saying, ah, because he, 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 he really enjoyed the project. And, and, and I think the spirit that, of, of the kind of project and, and the, the kind of we perhaps probably came from our like style of working in London as well, like more kind of indie filmmakers. He was saying, oh, that, that kind of spirit is kind of how Ardman started as well. And so he really enjoyed that kind of get going back to that. And that was- Basically, it means finding the most difficult way to do everything. <laughs> <laughs> yes. that, would you say that, that's like the defining characteristic of like how we've made films like yeah we could do it that way but yeah. imagine if we carved every single leaf repeating into the 20 <laughs> different sizes um and finding strange outside root processes but it's like yeah, they, they should they, dress they like they should dress like monks you know like just to just put it over the top you know like it feels like doing these incredibly uh, arduous or like, intricate ways to do things like let's make monastic beer like it's going to be the hardest thing to do, like, let's do that. <laughs> yeah um, there is those, a similar spirit but there's a really different lifestyle <laughs> yeah you know there's early arguments uh works I, I was trying to think of what was so great about them and i think one of the things was the comedic timing um yeah you know just the the, the the second looks and the uh, the deadpan moments and the react shots um, because they seem so true to you know the way that we move and, and articulate ourselves and I would think that that that's got to be an especially hard thing in stop motion is to capture that you know the nuance of uh, expressive reaction shots and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I suppose like a lot of those were Nick Park films. And one thing we learned since getting into, well, since making animated films was doing live action recordings of yourself as reference to what you're going to animate is really, is really helpful. And we've sort of figured that out ourselves as making our own films and then realised that actually that's probably kind of industry standard. And, and Ardman, I think, probably were one of the first to sort of start doing it, where you, you record, you know, yourself performing that action, and you might do a bunch of them. And then either just reference that as a kind of guide, or quite often you ac really accurately copy that and, and try and infuse the performance that you're animating with. Well, I guess yeah. it goes back to Snow White, though, doesn't it? I mean, Snow White has <laughs> lots of live action reference. To, yeah. But, but I suppose in, in the way that... Um, we would use it on the floor where you kind of work with um, with the animators and um, talk about it and workshop it with them and then film it yourself. And yeah. it's quite a sort of great, there's not a lot of spontane spontaneity in uh, stop motion. So you take those opportunities where you can to like be really flippant and expressive and um, find the comedy. But, but there is something different in the process of stop motion that's I think quite unique 
about it in terms of all of the animated sort of techniques. And that's, it's, it's a bit like a live performance. You don't, you can't go back in and refine it really. You know, you, you get one shot at animating it and perhaps on a, on a feature, you know, you get to do a reshoot if it's not quite right, but no one will like you for doing that. You, and, and on our, and on our film we had to we pretty much just had one take of every shot <clears throat> so you have to know exactly what you're doing when you go into it it's like tyro um, it's like blowing stuff up you can yeah it's hard to yeah yeah you, you, you set it up and then you you know see what happens and and so the the live the live action sort of reference is um i think it because of the the technique of having to do it on the day and the animator sort of feeling the pressure of it's like you're being you're like on stage but in slow motion <laughs> and you can't redo <laughs> anything you're doing you know really and so having that freer um and 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 sort of clear guide of a of a live action reference to to work from i think allows the animator like the the space and the confidence to kind of go for the performance yeah it's like a concert you're right it really is. It's like a concert uh, unfolding at a very slow rate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <The> tempo. <laughs> so you get all the you get all the kind of the pressure of showbiz, you know, but yeah. it's just drawn out over <laughs> over and, weeks. And, just and no which, one's is actually, which is actually the speed I like. I like to think about stuff a lot, and I I would feel you know. I like the combination of have, being able to be spontaneous and record a little live action reference and just flippantly do it off the cuff, but then also analyze it and work it into the ground. <laughs> Glacial spontaneity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I'm going to have to ponder that. Glacial spontaneity may be the name of my new band, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Snow White, Mikey. Uh, I would think... When I think about the visual references that they were doing, I think probably like people dancing and, and, and kind of the, the flow of things. But I do you think, I don't know if they were doing like the, the stuff that like is, you know, like I, I think of grommet every time something happens and just like, you know, just the, you know, the body language of, of the exasperation. Perhaps. The, the comedic terms, I guess. Because <clears throat> yeah. I guess with, with um, Snow White, they were really trying to capture that realism. And, and you know, obviously we're not doing that in, in Robin Robin. But I guess it's just really helpful for, yeah, figuring out those timings and like what the breathing spaces are. But obviously it's used a lot in CG, you know, with, and computer games and things where, where people just, they're not tracing anymore, but it's, it's motion capture. You know, the, the, the joy of the translation between our like live action references and the final thing is that they go through these incredible animators, you know, who are just incredible actors in and of themselves. And so we give them these references but really what they're doing is like performing themselves you know and like and also defying physics you know so like limbs will move in ways that they couldn't possibly if they were actually copying our, our references but it's funnier to do it that way and, and you get all the joy of, of snappy snappy animation which um is is useless to, to try and capture it in, in a live action reference because your your body won't do it only um, once. It only does it once. Only does it once, and then you'll never come your arm that way again. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's yeah. interesting too the it, uh, the endearing, how endearing the uh, in stop motion. There's something about, I guess, the, the figurines and stuff that, or the maquettes that you you feel more about them, or at least I do. Like I, I don't know how to express it, but there's something very endearing about the. Uh, yeah, I mean, we we we've, we've spoken about this quite a lot over, you know 
the, the the past few months of like what is it that kind of emotionally resonates with people a bit more with stop motion and and someone at some point along the way sort of dropped the word like poignancy I'm like yeah maybe there's a sort of poignancy and I think it's because they're so fragile and because mm. you like know what they are you can look at them and you know like oh my goodness it's just a little puppet and it could fall over and there's a sort of fragility of that character in the same way that you get the fragility of, of a real life person when you when you see them on screen that sometimes you don't empathize with in the same way in, in other mediums maybe I mean you know see yeah. all animation is amazing but there's something about knowing that there's a sort of tangibility of this puppet that creates I think like kind of an empathetic bond between the audience and and the subject on screen and that you can kind of you know that it's really there and that you get a sense as well of like how it could have been made and maybe you feel like you could have made it as well and so there's this bit more connection and, um, and the tactileness that because we can feel that it's moving through the world like it's an object we I, I think our sensibility that we kind of perceive that to a certain extent so there's a it seems to live yeah. in a world of physical consequence like it's 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 surroundings affected in a way that we can kind of perceive yeah i wonder whether it's <clears throat> just thinking back to the wallace like the wrong trousers or something like that wallace and gromit I think there's something about on one hand you can see that it's been made by by someone and maybe you could have made it and you can imagine holding that in your hand and you you know that's not real and it's inanimate and on the other hand you've got these really naturalistic performances that have captured like really believable human traits and you put them together and it's like this strange absurd magic of like knowing both things at once and you know, I, th I think that probably intensifies how you feel about it or something. Yeah. Because you're like, that that's, doesn't compute or something. And so like the, the really naturalistic moments are kind of funnier because of the absurdity of it. And, and yeah, for sure, like the plasticine has that quality. And we found that with needle felt, it, it has a similar quality in that you just, well, I mean, I don't know if you've got like needle felt Christmas decorations or anything like that, but that's what kind of inspired us to, to use it in the film. Um, these little mice decorations and things like that that we had and you just hold them in your hand and they they feel like they're really simple but they feel like they've got a soul and, and they've just got a real charm to them and we we just love that intrinsic quality in the material yeah that that's kind of why we that I mean that was the reason why we used it we didn't think of this like oh well, it'll be even more magic because you'll know what the material is and it'll be it'll be, be, be a real character but you're just sort of drawn to materials that I think you that have that certain texture that you can't cheat. You just can't, yeah. you, you could cheat it. I mean, you could, CGI could cheat it, but it would be really difficult. <laughs> it would yeah. be like half the time spent just trying to cheat something that is- It is interesting, yeah. isn't it? it? It's super interesting, I think, you know, and like I think back on the Rankin-Bass Christmas stuff, you know, like mm. when I was a kid and how I responded to those, like I, I have such emotional attachment to these, you know, these characters uh, in these stories and they, and they have such an emotional, aura i wonder whether it's going back to the like the toy thing as well like they because the rankin best they really feel like toys. part of the wonder of those is that they feel like they're toys that you could just be playing with on your tabletop that's right they're in a whole world and they've got you know and yeah and the kind of crudeness of anything you know that that was made back then makes them even better because you're like yeah they're real they're real toy little little characters um 
and it's that connection that you maybe just intrinsically feel to maybe this. yeah and those sense of wonder of it like it's a, a doll coming to life you know like it's like small world or or like yeah you know kind of it's like toy story too like I, I didn't know this about toy story and i feel like i kind of i'm a little worried i, I missed it for this long but the title was supposed to it's like toy store like that's why they call it toy story because it's toy store toy no. all right i didn't get that like toy story, like that that's a pun oh i didn't know that I, I totally, like, i'm glad that that, maybe, that maybe like doesn't carry to the uk because to us stores are shops you have a toy oh. shop <laughs> but be. um I Someone prefer saying, Toy Story. Yeah, well, they're saying like, you know, that's why they call it Toy Story, because Toy Story, you know, Toy Story. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess so. It's better that it's not a pun. I okay. prefer to never know that. I kind of like the idea. <laughs> I always thought it was like the grandeur of it or something like it's a little, it's only a toy of a story. I don't know. But but to come up with a franchise <laughs> where the characters are actually toys is pretty awesome for Hollywood. I mean, to, to get yeah. to that level of like, <laughs> Eliminating the middleman, like we are going straight to retail. That was that's the hey, we're, we're selling robins. We're selling live robins out the back of a truck. Uh, you know, we just circle in Bristol neighborhood with little cages. You know, so that's that's our approach. It has not worked out so great it's, so far. But Toy Story was like the perfect storm though of that, wasn't it? Because yeah, you've got it ticks the box of merchandise like absolutely perfectly, and then coupled with like the new technology that was just like a big wow moment and like brilliant story craft that That's was right like, that was emerging at that time and and the combination of all those things is yeah that, that uh, yeah the toy story again was like one of the things that really blew my mind but i don't know i didn't know why i would at the time i just wanted the toys like that's the main thing yeah i wanted <laughs> yeah it's it's uh it's pretty fascinating and like it doesn't feel to me like toy story was cynical but it feels like I, I i don't know this for a fact but like cars like i think with that and i think cars is great it's a good movie um but like they decided like we're gonna take hot wheels out we're gonna we're going yeah. to create a line of cars but, because but it's cars, cars doesn't have the same heart that toy story has i don't think i i, I mean maybe that's subjective but i the reason why i think the reason why i love toy story really was because again, of that friendship and it's like sibling, the love between two siblings or something like that. And all that stuff resonates even with young kids and you don't even know why, but, but where cars, like, I, I don't know, I didn't really. Um... Well, it's, it's less, as, I mean, there are, there are obviously relationships in, in the movie car, but it's not so much centered around that. It's like a journey that he goes on within himself to um, find his sort of humble grounding. It's the sort of city to the country transition, which, I don't know. Is, is maybe, less maybe I just haven't that. haven't done that yet. You know that kind of buddy movies happen in your life. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back to cars in a few years and be like, oh yes. Oh, it speaks to me. I get it. <laughs> you know how strange is it that that's Paul Newman's last movie was uh, wow, cars. Right. Yeah. Okay. That and Road to Perdition, which I love. I love that film, Road to Perdition. Oh, yeah. I, I think it's. I I would say if I wanted to be audacious that it's the best comic book adaptation ever made. Yeah, it's uh, amazing. Just, just because people don't think of it as a comic book, but it really, you know, I mean, it was it was very faithful and, and made it better and stuff like that. And and I think it looked probably the best looking guy ever. Like when he was like in his, <laughs> in, the, the, in his 20s, I mean, the guy looked like, a, you know, a statue, like a Greek statue or something like that. Um, 
just pretty cool people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that we've come round to the end of the chat. Is just um, cool. Paul Newman, his, <laughs> your cool. your love of Paul. <laughs> <laughs> the only out of body experience I ever had during an interview was with Clint Eastwood, um, because I we had this long. It was like the fourth time I interviewed him, and this all these strange things happened this day and. Um, he invited me to have dinner with him after because it had been such a strange day and everything. I'm like, of course. And so I went and had dinner with him and we're sitting there and I didn't bring a notebook and he noticed and he's like, good job because you know, he wanted it to be off the record. And he said, tell me a story. And I told him the story I told you guys about Mona and two badges. I kind of told him that story and he had this little stack of dark chocolates in front of him, like six of them, uh, little bricks, foil wrapped in a perfect, and you take one off, and you unwrap it. And I was telling a story and he started to eat it. You know, oh. And he leaned back and he's listening to the story. And, and he, I was trying to see how long I could keep him from eating that chocolate. Uh, <laughs> and, and I got pretty far. And in the middle of telling him the story and him saying, Jeff, that's a pretty good story. You know, uh, like him <laughs> responding to the story, I actually felt an out-of-body experience. Like I felt like I went to the top of the room and I was looking down and watching the two of us uh, and see how many oh, times wow. I wrapped me in my life. And I, and you know, it wasn't long after my father died and he was a big Clint Eastwood fan. I always felt like I'm seeing my dad's watching, and this is my way wow. of knowing that he's watching. So you had the hand on your shoulder, kind of saying, "Well done." Yes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. happy. That's incredible. Well, did you see those chocolates going in as like lives on a computer game? Like if he had got all of those chocolates in and you hadn't got to the end of your story, it'd be like, ah, you just... That's right. That's right. And you know, we're getting to the bottom of that second. And by the way, that was dinner. Like we never had food. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm drinking martinis and, and this bar that he owns uh, in, in Carmel, California. And I'm waiting for us to go order food. And I'm like, oh no, this is dinner, isn't it? Like, we're almost done. Like, you know, like we've been here for a while. And he's not even <laughs> given me one of those chocolates. Like, he didn't even offer. Like, you know, um, the photographer that was doing it, who later won a Pulitzer Prize in a war zone, a wonderful photographer for the LA Times, she was on a ladder uh, shooting him and she, she lost her, her uh, perch and her feet went out from under her and she fell. And, and it's oddly, just the physics of it, she went up and cut her head on the ceiling. It was in like a low slung room uh, right. in this bar, this tavern that was closed uh, at the time. And uh, and she cut herself and she fell and and now she's just beside herself. She's so embarrassed. I mean, she's a, a wonderful professional, uh, one of the best photographers uh, in, in photojournalism. And Clint, he crossed the room so quickly and was next to her on one knee, cradling her and pulling a handkerchief out. And no, no, everything's fine. No, no, don't be silly. Everything's okay. Let's take a look at that, you know? And he immediately turned into a father, immediately turned into a nurturing, didn't care about anything else. Um, you know, and he hates having his photo taken. And he has this trick, he'll say to the photographers, like, how's that last one? And they, and they go, oh, it looks great. Like, good, we're done. And as if they say it's good, he's like, oh, then you're good. And then he walks up, like, he's famous for that. And uh, so she was really nervous. She was gonna only have like so many shots before he just walked out. Suddenly he had all the time in the world. What do you need? Are you okay? Tut tut, everything's fine. And uh, it was such a lovely thing to see 
in a in a strange way. I feel terrible for my friend, and, and that she had this uh, just a minor mishap. But it, I know it was it was troubling for her. But to see him in that mode, in that moment, uh, and how genuine and how real he was was very very endearing. If only she'd had another tripod set up on a timer to That's see right. her being cradled by Clint Eastwood. That would have been. <laughs> Exactly another pulsar, right. probably. <laughs> another exactly part. right. Uh, you know, he's he's, yeah. he's an extraordinary guy. The way that I met him is I sent five notes to five people. Uh, I'd love to do a story on you. And I uh, I said in his note, I see it's the 40th anniversary of Dirty Harry. And I would love to sit down with you and talk about the American cinema of vengeance. And that, that's all it said. And sincerely, Jeff and Jake, blah, blah. And um, I purposely put in something that was kind of, cryptic uh just because i figured that that over explains not going to help sitting at my desk next day typing tick, 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 rings times yeah is this jeff boucher yeah and i'm like fuck this is clint eastwood he goes, this is clint eastwood i'm like yeah i know and he's like what the hell is an american cinema of vengeance me <laughs> and i said oh i don't really know that's what i want to talk to you about but it seems like you know these movies like terrible things happen to people just so they have the the ability to go and kill everybody like it, it feels like that's what we all want is a, is a proper death rage hey, what you haven't seen dirty harry <laughs> you haven't seen dirty harry and i said you're in the film are you aware of that and he's like yeah i, I was making outlaw josie wales when it came out i didn't go to the premiere and i i don't sit around and watch my my movies and i tried to watch it once on the laser disc but i got to the part where you have to flip it and i just said ah <laughs> uh, which is hysterical so set up a screening of Dirty Harry for Clint Eastwood to watch Dirty Harry for the first time <laughs> with me. And I think he just liked the audacity of the whole thing. Do you think that's quite <laughs> common that the actors don't watch any of their stuff? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And yeah. also, don't they probably, they probably watch it a lot while they're making it, like, you know, um, yeah. if they're involved in the process, you know. Yeah, I can see it's that. Like, I don't like, like to read my story. It sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? But then if you think about it, they wouldn't watch themselves, they wouldn't be able to watch themselves on theatre, but no one would say why do you do this if you can't watch yourself performing i would imagine also a big part of not wanting to watch yourself um is because then you're aware of the things that you don't like in your own performances or That's right. you know whatever and you're or you're the feeling of your shortcomings being like captured which maybe to other people don't even seem like shortcomings yeah. and and i imagine if you direct your own thing you can't hide from those <laughs> or you, you are right. like choosing the the very thing that you might be hiding behind yeah so, and yeah. it's funny is because a lot of actors become directors i think because they see directors more than directors see directors do, do you think it's a um this is a question to you dan do you think it's an asset <laughs> or a hindrance that the two of us have kind of not really ever worked in a studio situation like as in the, the like we've only ever really directors you know we we haven't um been sort of jobbing animators within a, a structure which which is the sort of the more common route towards directing long-form animation is that you know you you work within uh, a department or you come through lots of various other channels but um neither of us have <laughs> and sometimes yeah. i think ah, it's great and sometimes i think Oh, I wish I knew <laughs> a more efficient system of of this. So. Yeah, I don't know because I guess we started making making our own films, you know, 
mostly by ourselves in some form and then with each project probably grew to a bigger team so you have this you have this feeling that you kind of because you started out doing everything that like you kind of know a bit about each element and you know that is helpful but but I I don't know I mean I don't yeah it probably just helps retain the qualities that you you know that we started making our films they've probably retained those some of those bits haven't we just by like (laughs) <laughs> Being outside the system gives you the ability to be naive, though, in some ways, and and sometimes naive yeah. is really good because you try things that other people don't try. You know, like so yeah, that's... end up coloring outside the lines a little bit. Yeah, you've got yeah. that. You, you haven't been like jaded by anything of like of trial and error, or you do. You, and if, as long as you kind of, which I think me and Mikey have all have always had since we started working together, and 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 sort of still do now, I think, which is like a sort of an ambition but like also perhaps <laughs> well it's, it's like a thing you talk about in robin but i think it's naive optimism which i think is the, yeah. <laughs> is the quality you're reaching for and it's something yeah. that we put into <clears throat> is like the core of robin is that like she's not a complete idiot but she does have this like overly optimistic sense of what she can achieve beyond her physical capabilities which i think is yeah, why not? How hard did it be? And then we do it like, God, that was so hard. <laughs> and then we forget of the pain and then we're like, yeah, let's do it again. <laughs> It'll be great. It'll be and great. I think if you, perhaps if you do that, but you're with a bit of a sense of humor and or a bit of a kind of self-deprecating approach, it, because it, I, I sometimes think like the definition of arrogance is confidence beyond your means, which, but arrogance is like a really nasty word. Like you, you wouldn't use that as a nice quality, but but then to make something new, you have, and lo- in loads of respects, you have to be confident beyond your means, or, or you ha- yeah, you have to be confident in yourself, even though maybe you don't know how to do that thing. And I, I was, yeah, perhaps being able to like laugh at yourself and rein yourself in. No. It's it, funny, it, right? Because it's like the it, difference between arrogance and like being naively optimistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the difference between faith and arrogance. Uh, you know, like uh, yeah. Like, I'm the best or the best will happen. Like, I guess maybe that's a slight difference, but it's like the Ed Wood line too. Though. He's walking out of his movie and looks seasick. He's like, it's the worst movie I've ever seen. I think the line is like, the next one will be better. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like just, uh, yeah, yeah. just a relentless uh, resistance to discouragement. <laughs> yeah, you've, you've got to have that when you're making a film, well, especially we found that with this, is that most of what you do and most of what you you know, you make these animatics, these rough versions of the film. Now, like 99% of what you make and watch is like not good <laughs> at the beginning. It's like, you know, you, and you have to kind of build up this resilience. Like, it's not about how good it is. It's about how, what's the next step to make it better. And and you've just got to sort of see beyond the stuff that isn't nowhere near up to scratch and, and could be disheartening part of the process. Yeah, just like looking for the good bits within what you've made and building off them rather than dwelling on the bad bits, which, and it may be 95% bad bits, but it doesn't matter because if you've got 5% good and the next day you've got, I don't know, 6% good, you're like, well, that's a good day. That's still, is the exactly. good. Exactly. I think so. I think we should all stick with it. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, what a, what a, what a fun, um, super fun talking to you guys. Like, uh, I, I think this is, I, think this is our longest show like i which is i consider a compliment <laughs> like, oh um, wow didn't well, we just say that, so we, we 
if you allocate us the 45 minutes each you know that <laughs> well okay you got me there but, but also I didn't that. didn't we say that you know that whole thing of um sorry didn't have enough time to write a short letter perhaps the length <laughs> is <laughs> all right maybe of me and Mike do that. <laughs> <laughs> well this is our concert and uh, i'd like you to come back next week and the week after that <laughs> oh definitely. well that would be a delight for us both yeah i'm going to continue my deep deep dive into your your podcast archive as i said well, you'll I'm, see I'm i stiff. tell the same I think you might hear the Clint Eastwood story over that, you know, I think I told that one before I, I, I halfway through, I was like, Oh my God, I think I might've told this story before. <laughs> it's just, it's sort of embarrassing. It would be even better the second time. <laughs> you can check it for continuity. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oddly, last time I, I, it's, it was, it was Stallone. I don't know why. The change. Yeah. Oh, it's not sheep. What? Jeff. <laughs> yeah. It was camels and Stallone. I don't understand. <laughs> Uh, it's just been a treat to talk to you and, and uh, we can't wait to see what you guys do next. Uh, no, thanks. thanks, yeah. It's been a real pleasure. This is Mindspace and you just heard Jeff Boucher in conversation with Mikey Please and Dan Ojari, the animators and directors behind Ardman's short film, Robin Robin, which is nominated for Best Animated Short this year. Are you excited for the Oscars audience? And Jeff, <laughs> I know you are. You know, it's 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 a weird year because there uh, there's so many movies nominated for Best Picture, but not that many movies came out, and everything is just kind of unsettled and strange. But uh, I do love Oscars history. You know, I'm I'm a big fan of Oscars. Uh, you know, through the years and stuff like that, even though it infuriates me as well. Oh, why does it infuriate you? Sometimes, sometimes they give the you know, like when the wrong thing wins. I think you know, like mm -hmm. when uh, Driving Miss Daisy wins best picture and do the right thing isn't nominated the same year then that's that that infuriates me it, it's also a good thing because it's a it's a way to discuss things you know i've been talking about that for all these years it gives me a reason to talk about film and race and and culture and things like that so it's good sometimes to be upset mm -hmm. yeah i know i know race is one frequent criticism of the academy that you know due to a hollywood being kind of exclusive and then the kinds of people who are already in the academy and choose things it creates a kind of snowball effect that am amounts to you know long-term exclusion even though you know you can't point to any specific uh scumbag pulling strings behind the scenes you know it's just something sure. that kind of unconsciously gets compiled yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a country club kind of uh, over time. You're right. It, it's it's not one person or one group of people. It's sort of a, a collective, um, uh, aloof and, you know, kind of uh, insider uh, club. But uh, they, they really struggled with it. And it's weird the people that get in because for years and years to get into the academy is kind of a mysterious thing. And and the, the membership was kept, uh, was semi-secret, you know, uh, on a large level, at least. But I mean, like Eric Estrada, you know, because he was on chips, they made him a member of the Academy. He's not, you know, like he votes for Best Picture, but then, you know, you would have like really fine young actors, people that have done extraordinary things or not even necessarily young, uh, established actors who aren't in. Uh, so it's really strange and people don't understand the, the voting system sometimes that each group votes for the category. So like, the film editors vote for the film editor category, the actors for the acting categories, and then everybody votes for best picture. 
I don't think they, they explain that to people very often. And I think that that would make it mm. more understandable why some of the, some of the, the uh, things happen that happened uh, as far as the award. Yeah, because I know lots of people get mad when a certain picture wins best picture, but the director doesn't win best director. Or like when there's an, a little incongruency like that, that, you know, from a kind of intuitive perspective, it's like, well, isn't the best director by default the one who makes the best picture? But, you know, if there are kind of niche specialist groups that that then get broken down in the best film category, I can see how it would cause some of those little blips and head scratchers. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 true. Although, you know, the best picture, I could see it also that you want to reward all phases so that you might think that um, the best director is the person that either got the best performances that year or the person that did the most with what they had, but maybe the best picture is the one that also uh, you consider costuming and special effects. And, and some of those movies might not be the best director movie, but they might be the best picture movie. My phone says I'm wrong. My phone says I'm wrong. <laughs> that was the Academy calling. Academy line too. You know, I was banned from the Academy, uh, from the Oscars uh, in 1999 and then proceeded to go six times. Oh, I think awesome. you told that story, <laughs> but could you recap again, just so? Well, I got in trouble for, uh, uh, they thought I, I broke into the rehearsals because uh, I wrote a story about rehearsals and they couldn't figure out how I got in. Oh. And so they called in with these attorneys and the city attorney and publicists and, and they were going to revoke the LA Times folk credentials, all of them for the show, hmm. which would have like, uh, I was told might financially crippled the newspaper because they would have to repay advertising all the ads that sold for the oscars issue so you can mm -hmm. imagine and it was my first week as an entertainment reporter um, oh. so it was great, great first week <laughs> but uh yeah they i was told i was banned for life and then i went uh the next six years in a row so i, I wish people, that, was I there wish was there any that. incident did anybody rec like recognize you or did anybody allude to it or well what Oh, no, 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 nobody ever figured it out. Uh, I guess they're, they, they're not real good on that, uh, that aspect of it. But like, sometimes I would go on a press credential. Sometimes I would go, I had a hard ticket. Uh, sometimes I'd only be on the red carpet. Sometimes I'd be inside. It just depended on what the paper wanted me to do that year. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, there was a lot of, a lot of bluster, but, uh, and, and I didn't break in. I, I didn't. So they were just wrong. Mm -hmm. But I love, I love saying it. It's nice. It'll be great if I ever win an Oscar. It'll be a great speech. Like say, you know, I'm mm -hmm. not even supposed to be here. <laughs> I'm banned. <laughs> Has anyone else, do you know, like been banned from the Oscars? Like somebody famous or no? No, I mean, I saw Harvey Weinstein walking around once. So I, I guess they let anybody in, you know? Oh, yeah. Post? Post? Uh, no, no. Post? No. no. Okay. Yeah, I'm just saying he's just he's reprehensible even then. But uh, no, I, I don't I don't know anybody that got banned. And I, you know, one person yelled that at me, but I guess I don't know if it actually if there was any mechanism for it. But uh, hmm. it's uh, it was it was a fun first week. How far do you think a person could get like trying to like pretend that they belong there? Like I I don't belong there. How 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 could I like get in? <laughs> It's tough, you know. It's tough. And how long I, could I 
how long could I keep up the facade? What would I need to do? It depends on how, uh, you know, no, not far. Uh, it's just tough. It's just tough. Just because they, I mean, they, they really do kind of uh, crack down on stuff. Like I, I've had credentials and gotten in trouble. I've been like grabbed for being on the wrong side of a shrub. You're on, you're over the shrub. You're supposed to be on this side of the shrub, you know, like, I'm sorry. Okay. You know, like, uh, I, one year, my, my story assignment was to see how long I could stay on the red carpet. Cause you're not allowed to, you have to keep moving. They come and they tell you if you, you're standing, they're like, move along, move along. And they, they really push you. And it's, it's kind of like in basketball, you're not allowed to stay in the key for a certain amount of time that, you know, you get a, a technical or you get a, a, a foul. Um, and I try to stay as long as I could, but at some point they, they, they hurt you. So you just have to go, you know, like mm -hmm. you, you don't want to get hurt. <laughs> uh, I think yeah, they should introduce like a gameplay basketball element to the Oscars or football, like where there are soccer, where there are technical fouls. <laughs> I think so. I think, I, I think they happen all the time. Uh, I think a lot of technical fouls, that's for sure. Uh, you know, I tried what? to walk there once and you can't walk oh. to the Oscars. I took the oh, train. Oh, you got to pull up? I took the train. Uh, uh, for, I live in Long Beach, California, and, and the Oscars are at the intersection of Hollywood and Highland in California, or in California, in Hollywood. And I took the, uh, the blue line to the red line up so I could be environmental. Got off one station away, because they have a, a station in Hollywood and Highland, that, but they shut that down during the show. And I walked, uh, you know, a couple blocks to get in, and the cops stopped me. And they're like, "What are you doing?" You know, it's it's there's a driveway for limos and for everybody else, drop off, uh, and there's no there's no way to walk up because they have all these barricades mm -hmm. and like yeah. fencing and that's, and the cops like, "You can't. This is there's no pedestrians here." And I go, "Well, I don't have a car." And like, well, then you can't come through. And I go, "But I have a ticket to the show." And he's like, "Let me see that." And I show him my ticket. He goes, "Yeah, okay, that's that's a ticket." I said, so I can go? He's like, no, there's no pedestrians. I said, well, how do I get in? He goes, you have to go get a cab. And I said, I have to go walk two blocks to get a cab and take that cab two blocks to where we're standing to get in? And he's like, yes. And I was like, sometimes your story just writes itself. <laughs> uh -huh. Like, that was my part of the whole story. That was the year, the Ben Kingsley year. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Because I know that you you took the poster back on the, on the train. On the train. Yeah. Okay. So... But anyway, I, I sure wished, uh, I wish they were giving out two awards for animated short this year, because then Windshield Wiper and Robin Robin could both win it. You know, that'd be mm -hmm. great. Yeah. Shame. Cover all your bases, you know, things you can show your four-year-old, things that you can't show yeah. <laughs> your four-year-old exactly. or your parents. <laughs> it is an eclectic uh, category, isn't it? Like, uh, yeah. it's all over the place. Uh, but, uh, I think, it, it I think you great. get like so much variety in the animated short category because it's not, I mean, it, it's, you, it, you're free from Animals. all the constraints of having to look with, re, look like reality. You know, you can That's get right. like lots more indie stuff and also it's, you know, free of the kind of, you know, the look of feature film animation that I feel like everything kind of has now. Like, yeah, funny. I know. Yeah. Really yeah. It has you know it really has uh i mean i feel like that's because it, like seven out of ten of them come from the same disney studio <laughs> yeah yeah uh, yeah uh, there's there's something to be said for that and there is the kind of a, but you know you see the other like blue sky and those people they they, they all kind of fall in line they all meet in the middle and they have this kind of um i wouldn't say generic but certainly becoming a 
kind of a standard look. Mm -hmm. uh, although Spider-Verse kind of broke that a little bit. Um, yeah. That's what the people, but more with the uh, the frame of the screen and, and uh, the world it presented. But yeah, the, the you know, uh, most films are aiming a camera at something, but these animated shorts and, uh, and animated features and uh, to a lesser extent, is really like an art frame that's just blank and anything you can fill anything in there and, and people do and it's amazing to see that eclectic uh just at, uh, world view as you say you know well thanks for joining us thanks for sticking with us it was a long show i hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and uh, we'll see you next time thanks a lot